Well, it's nice to see all of you all together again. The last time we saw each other all together, it was about 30 degrees cooler. Turn with me to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. In my sermon notes, sometimes I make a historical note just for my own benefit, like Mother's Day or New Year's or guest speaker of a certain church, just so I know why I preached that particular message. My historical note in my own notes today is the longest one I've ever written. Today is July 26, 2020. On the occasion of worshiping outdoors due to the California governor's somewhat understandable yet very debatable mandate to abandon indoor church services because of a resurgence of coronavirus. That's what we're doing today. And because of this unique situation with Grace Bible Church and many other local gatherings now enjoying the fresh air and hastening our visits to dermatologists all over the city, I thought it would be appropriate to do something a little different today for us to simply be encouraged and to be reassured. And I think that's what would be best for us today. So in Psalm 46 today, I'd like to talk to you about turning your eyes upon Jesus, turning your eyes upon Jesus. In these past few months, all of us have faced life-altering changes, cultural changes, new mandates, new laws. We've seen more social unrest and violence than probably most of us have in our lifetimes. You've personally had to make priority decisions for your own lives. In fact, the leadership of Grace Bible Church, we've dealt with more spiritual gray areas than a paint area, paint crew on an aircraft carrier In the past few months and even up to this week, the leadership of Grace Bible Church has dealt with questions I never thought I would hear discussed. Questions forced upon us by the pandemic. Things like, should we love one another by covering everyone's faces and make everyone sit far apart? Who's going to make the announcement that the most caring thing you can do for your church is to stay home? Should people register to go to church so they can feel like they're buying expensive concert tickets and should we sell t-shirts? Do we have enough alcohol-based products in the church? I never thought I'd hear that one. How do we say with kindness at the end of a service, we love you, now leave really fast? Should we recommend sunscreen, Bermuda shorts, and fly swathers to attend church? And this was my favorite question, how far does saliva travel? I really, we've prayed over that one. But the harder reality is that one of the worst parts of this time in history is that this sense that the world is coming apart, the sense of not being safe, all the little things that we take for granted that are the normalcies of life that are sort of our little security blankets, they're all, they're going away. They're being turned upside down. And Psalm 46 is written for exactly that sort of time, a time where we need Something totally predictable. And what is always predictable is the care and the comfort of our God. It's always the same. So Psalm 46, if you follow along with me, says to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What a fabulous text. Now, it's most likely that Psalm 46 was written kind of as a celebration. It was a celebration of a time when 
God had delivered Jerusalem from attack. The obvious choice is the Assyrian invasion of 701 BC or so, in which God saved Jerusalem by slaying 185,000 Assyrian troops. There are a couple of other options, but really what is left for us here is a model of how to handle uncertainty, how to handle a world that seems like it's coming apart. Now, you've seen that the psalm was divided nicely into three little parts by the musical notation Selah after verses 3, 7, and at the end after 11. Part 1, very briefly, is just simply a determination not to fear. That's all that is. We're determined not to fear. Part 2 tells us of the confidence of God's people, even in the face of invading armies, even in the face of great and grave danger, And part three is simply an invitation to observe the judgment of God on all who would come against his people. So it divides neatly into those three parts, but there's also this very clear interwoven theme throughout this psalm. What we're going to see is that this Holy Spirit-inspired victory poem focused on God's protection of Jerusalem very quickly begins to take on a future prophetic flavor to it. There begins to be a look to the, to the future. In fact, we get some initial clues to this based on the larger context. Psalm 46 is one of six psalms often called Songs of Zion, Songs of Jerusalem. And each of the other five all share a unique quality. Let's see if you can pick up on it. Psalm 48 is another Song of Zion. Jerusalem is the joy of all the earth. God is within her midst. Psalm 76 God has broken the weapons of his enemies and now resides in Jerusalem as king. Psalm 84, Jerusalem is called the dwelling place of God and people may go to Jerusalem to appear before God the king. You have Psalm 87, Jerusalem is called the city of God, the place that the Lord loves more than any other. And the Lord is pictured as being in Jerusalem In Psalm 122, this is a psalm of David praying for the peace of Jerusalem, peace and security, and Scripture indicates that will only happen when Messiah returns. And so what's the unique quality that all the songs of Zion share? Very simply, a description of a peaceful Jerusalem ruled by God himself in her midst, Jesus Christ, a returned Messiah. We get another clue as to the future prophetic flavor In the psalm I read just a moment ago, Psalm 47, right here in the immediate context, verses 1 and 2, clap your hands, all people, shout to God with loud shouts, songs of joy. Why? For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. Now, I want to help our New Testament spiritual thinking. And what I mean by spiritual is that we have never seen God as king ruling on earth. Israel, to a small degree, has. They have a a hope of God actually ruling on earth. So when we as Christians, especially influenced by some probably not so helpful theological influences, when we say God is king, we tend to think, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's king up in heaven, and he, generally speaking, is ruling over everything. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about being able to go to a specific place to meet God as king on this earth. And we need to get that mindset in our minds to really understand the glory of Psalm 46. But before we get to the future part of Psalm 46, let's set up the crisis And this is not dissimilar to the crisis that we're in at so many levels here. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A refuge in Hebrew is just a place to go for shelter. It can be shelter from a storm, shelter from battle. And of course, strength is just generally a term that refers to divine enablement, that God helps in the midst of a crisis but really, this is best considered together. There's, there's a, a Hebrew mechanism at work here that says it's not so much just that God is a refuge and God is a strength. It's that God is a strong refuge. That's important. If you're in a hurricane, you don't get into a tent. That's not a strong refuge. You get into a fortress. The text says God is a very present help. What does help mean? 
It's really the sense of availability, that God is available, that he's around. He's doing that, which his people can't do for himself. And, and he's available to be a help when in a time of trouble. This is a time of such seriousness that God's people can't endure without his help. This is not the minor problems of life that we've learned to deal with just by the independence that God has given us. This is a, a situation which can't be dealt with without God. Trouble, interestingly, can speak of inner turmoil or can speak of something happening outwardly. Generally, what happens? Something happens outward, creating the inward turmoil. So it's very appropriate to think of both. I want you to notice something here. In a time of trouble, the very first word on the psalmist's tongue is not, oh, no. What's the first word? God. He looks up immediately. He doesn't look out. He looks up. And so verse 1 is a strong theological statement about God. And this is where we start. We start with theology. And theology always has practical implications, has practical results. And the result of our sound theology is verses 1 and 2, the correct theological conclusion. That therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The most stable thing on earth that we see are mountains. They don't move. And yet the psalmist says, even if the mountain moves, we won't fear. The, the thing that we think is very, very stable, the ocean. This is a picture of the oceans breaking down the mountains. This goes all the way back to a picture of Noah's flood, of something of that epic proportion that even if the earth is literally coming apart, then we don't fear. Now, this could be speaking of natural disasters or coronavirus or anything like that. But the metaphor here of this topsy-turvy, upside-down world really extends to something that's more of a political nature. Look with me at verse 6. This is the problem. The nations rage. The nations rage. Using a similar metaphor, Isaiah chapter 8 speaks of the invasion of Assyria into Israel in the 8th century, and it calls it a great flood. And so, no, you don't preach Isaiah 8 as trust God when waters from a river get high. No, trust God when political chaos and turmoil is happening. Now, I'm asserting that both from the context of the songs of Zion and the immediate proximity of Psalm 47, Psalm 48, songs very strong in the presence of Messiah, that Psalm 46 is very Christological. It is very Christ-centered in nature. It deals with the presence of God on earth, and it deals with God ruling in Jerusalem. And so, yes, this is a celebration of a past victory, but there are elements which are clearly yet in the future. God reigning from Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. The entire earth under God's dominion. That definitely hasn't happened yet. And the end of all wars on the earth. So you can't escape the prophetic, the future element of Psalm 46. And for that reason, what I think is so very encouraging about Psalm 46 is that it allows us to do what that comforting hymn written at the end of World War II says to do, to turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's where we find our comfort. So I'd like to extend the same invitation to you given in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. And this is where we get to have the best seats in the house. This is where we get to be brought out, as it were, onto the balcony of the history of prophecy, so to speak. And we get a bird's eye view of the future conquest of the earth by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. But let's do so in a chronological order. I want to go in the events happening first, second, third, and so forth. And so we'll just label these. First, turn your eyes upon the warning of Jesus. We turn your eyes upon the warning of Jesus. In chronological order, verse 6, the nations rage. This is the idea of being in tumult. This is the idea of rebellion, of rejection of Yahweh as God. In fact, this is a Hebrew word which speaks of a noisy assembly. It can be translated a riot. It is a pushing back hard against the authority of God. Now, when you read 
In verse 6, the nation's rage. If you know Psalms, there's one particular Psalm that jumps out in your memory, and that's Psalm 2. Psalm 2, why do the nations, what? Rage. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, rage in verse 1 of Psalm 2 is a different Hebrew word than Psalm 46, verse 6, but it's very similar in meaning. It means to be restless. It means to cause a commotion. It means to be noisy. And the context of Psalm 2 is very clearly rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. In Hebrew, his Mashiach, his Messiah. In Greek, his Christ. The final verses of Psalm 2 issue a very clear warning about the consequences of rejecting Christ and the blessings for bowing to Christ. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this warning that we see beginning in verse 6 is made directly in verse 10. This is the only part of Psalm 46 where God himself speaks directly. Verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, if I could make a little minor correction here. Psalm 46 verse 10 is not said to the faithful in the sense of be still and know that I am God. That's not the sense. It's said to the rebellious, be still, be quiet. Put it in our terms, shut up. Be still is a verb that means drop your hands. Stop doing anything. Cease your action. It means to go limp. It means to go slack. And the warning is be still and know that I am God. It means believe that I am sovereign. Believe that I am the king. You have a chance to believe still. Why? Because God will be exalted among all nations. When Christ has returned to the earth, when he's defeated his enemies at the battle of Armageddon, Zechariah 14 verse 16 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. All nations will exalt Christ. And you might say, well, who is that King? Or we might say it this way, who is this King of glory? I'm glad you asked because Psalm 24 verse 8 says, Who is this King of glory? And the answer in Psalm 24 is that he's the one who's entered the gates of the ancient city of Jerusalem, the Lord who is strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts, the commanders of the armies of heaven. And the, the warning here in verse 10 to these tumultuous nations, to the, to the nations who are exalting themselves and rejecting Christ, this is a clear warning that the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted. And it's simply your choice as to how he will be exalted. Let me put it more in personal terms. The Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted in your life. Either when he saves you by his grace, when you repent of your sin, he will be exalted. Or he will be exalted when he lists for all of heaven to hear every single sin you've ever committed and then throws you into the lake of fire because you refuse to repent. But Christ will be exalted. He will be king of the earth. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus Christ will purify all of the earth such that all the peoples will exalt him. Zephaniah 3 verse 9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Isaiah 66, 18 says, The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. Now, how is it that God is going to purify the earth? Is it that he's going to, it says, change the speech of the peoples. Does that mean that suddenly all the people who have ever rejected Christ are going to be magically transformed into believers? No, that's not how he's going to purify. The purification is going to look very similar to what Moses said to Israel just before they crossed the Red Sea with the armies of Egypt in pursuit, Exodus 14, 13, Moses said to the people, and you have to picture this, they're looking back at the great and mighty army of Pharaoh Amenhotep II, 
And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. How will God purify the speech of all peoples? By taking away all who would not exalt him. The great separation of all who have believed on Christ, separated from those who will not. God's enemies swept away. You know what your salvation was? Your salvation was the end of you raging against God. It was you obeying the command to be still and know that I am God. That's what your salvation was. It was the end of you gathering in your own heart to make tumult, to make a riot, to make noise against the God who would save you. And instead, God being rich in mercy, he drew you to himself. He caused you to be born again so that never again will you rage against him. Never again will you need to be told to be still. And so we turn your eyes first upon the warning of Jesus. Well, Psalm 46 gives us another way to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Staying in chronological order, turn your eyes upon the return of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon the return of Jesus. Now, the New Testament gives us tremendous information. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, John 14, about the taking up, the, the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ, all those living believers at that time. Now, since the concept of a primarily Gentile church, this is a mystery in the Old Testament, we wouldn't expect a psalm to deal in detail with something like the rapture of the church. We need the progressive revelation of the New Testament to understand that, to bring us those truths. But the Old Testament saint most assuredly had a robust theology of the coming of Messiah. Now, we know he's already come once, so what do Christians say? We say the return of Messiah, the second coming. We differentiate the return of Christ as something which happens after the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians 4 is very clear that when the church is taken up, the living saints on earth meet Christ in the air, and John 14 says they're taken back to heaven. But then Revelation 19 tells us, and this is at a later time, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in the robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, and you all know this, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, is that moment referenced here in Psalm 46? Yes, it is. We'll get to it in just a moment. What's happening in Jerusalem when Christ will return? Revelation 12 tells us that many Jews will have had to flee into the wilderness to get away from the cruelty of Antichrist. And for three and a half years, a remnant of Jews will have had to flee for their lives. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that many will turn to saving faith in their Messiah. Their eyes will be opened. Revelation 11 tells us that during the same time, two witnesses are in Jerusalem. They are men very much like Moses and Elijah. I've made the case in the past that this is Moses and Elijah. That's another message for another day. But these witnesses are finally killed after three and a half years of preaching. They're resurrected. They ascend into heaven in the sight of all. And at that moment, Revelation 11 tells us that this great earthquake happens in Jerusalem such that 7,000 people, and in Greek it literally says 7,000 named men, meaning officials. Who is in charge of the world at this time? Antichrist is. These are officials of Antichrist and they die in this earthquake. You know what happens to the Jews in Jerusalem? Revelation 11 says they gave glory to the God of heaven. In the book of Revelation, to give glory to the God of heaven says, I just got saved. And so you have Jerusalem turning to Christ right at the end. And now in a world dominated by the darkness and the chaos of Antichrist, 
Revelation 16, beginning in verse 14, says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And verse 16 says, and they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo. Why are they gathering for war? Revelation 19, verse 19 says, And I saw the beast that is Antichrist and the kings of the earth with their armors gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who is that? That is the Lord Jesus Christ described just a few verses earlier. Now, the question might be, well, how did they know he was coming? How could they gather for war? Jesus himself said in Matthew twenty four twenty seven, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We understand the rapture of the church to happen in the twinkling of an eye. The coming of Christ is not a twinkling of the eye. It is something that will be seen. We can make a case from the end of the book of Daniel that it will be seen for 30 days. In fact, there will be time for the unbelievers to dread the coming of Christ. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? There is time for dread. There is time to gather the armies. There is time for the waters of the Euphrates to be dried up and armies of hundreds of millions to be brought forward. What's the attack point for this coalition of nations that has crossed the dried up Euphrates? The attack point is Jerusalem. God says in Zechariah 14, 2 and 3, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So, so this looks bad. This, these nations will invade. They will conquer. But you remember the giant earthquake from Revelation 11? That's just happened. And it's very likely that it has massive consequences, including, by the way, the splitting apart of the Mount of Olives next to Jerusalem. And in fact, the split is so wide that it forms a valley, and it's through this valley that Jews are now escaping. And here comes the Lord Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 14, 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Zechariah 14 tells us that this particular day of the return of Christ, often called in Scripture the day of the Lord, it will be a completely unique day, one like we've never seen. Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 6, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. What is the time where there's neither day nor night? What do we call that? We call that dawn. In other words, it's a continual light long after dark. It is a continual dawn. Now in Psalm 46, speaking of the rescue of Jerusalem, look with me at Psalm 46, verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That is not a coincidence. That's not just a nice little word picture. That's not just a poetic device. The idea of dawn is rich in the Old Testament with its imagery and its association with the coming of Messiah. 
And for example, the great messianic prophecy of Isaiah 9 tells of the coming of Christ the first time. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great what? Light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. One of my very favorite scenes in any movie of all time is in the second Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers, in which the wizard Gandalf has left the endangered people of Rohan for a time when they're about to come under attack from their enemies. But Gandalf says, Look to my coming. At first light, on the fifth day, at dawn, look to the east. And after a night of horrific battle, which seems hopeless, Gandalf comes, riding on a white horse, by the way, just for that imagery, with his armies, and he saves the day. Listen, from our balcony view of prophetic history, how great it is to turn your eyes upon the warning of Jesus. If you're saved, that's taken care of in your heart. And second, turn your eyes upon the return of Jesus. Staying in chronological order, though, turn your eyes upon the triumph of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon the triumph of Jesus. Verse 6, again, the nations rage. The nations have been warned, be still and know that I am God. They have not heeded the warning. And so, verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. What does it mean that the kingdoms totter? You don't need to be a Hebrew scholar. It means they fall over. The voice of the Lord speaks now. How significant is that? Psalm 29 says that the voice of the Lord thunders. It's powerful. It's full of majesty. It breaks the cedars. It flashes flames of fire. It shakes the wilderness such that all the angels and saints in heaven cry glory. We've already read Psalm 19 verse 15, which says that Christ comes to earth, as it were, with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. What does that mean? It's not a literal sword. It means that his words are weapons of mass destruction. And just how powerful are those words? Zephaniah 3 verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I will rise to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. And what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ utters his words of mass destruction? Zechariah 14:12 This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths in fact Revelation 14:20 says that the land will be covered with blood for a space of about 200 miles in fact if you ever ask the question, well, how's the world going to know that Christ is returned? Jesus told us how. He told us how the rest of the world will know he'd returned. Matthew twenty four twenty eight. wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's not a proverb. That's just saying where all the dead bodies are, that means that's where I've been. 600 years before the birth of Christ, God told the prophet Ezekiel, very interesting. He said, speak to the birds. Speak to the birds of the air. And he says in Ezekiel thirty-nine seventeen, Speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come. This is what he's saying. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. Again, to the birds and to the beasts, Ezekiel thirty nine twenty, and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And here we are on our balcony of God's invitation. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. And all of a sudden, there's silence. There's silence. The birds of the air, the beasts of the field, yeah, they're coming. They're coming to the greatest meal they've ever had. Millions of corpses on the ground. And the silence in verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. 
he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Can I put it this way? In verse 9, he has made all the earth to be still. Verse 10 is the warning, you better be still before I make you. And so now we see the silence. He has returned. He has conquered. He has triumphed. Our balcony view of the history of the future, staying in chronological order, fourth, turn your eyes upon the city of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon the city of Jesus. Jesus lamented in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Why is this so important? This is important because Psalm 87 says that Jerusalem is God's favorite place on earth. God's favorite place on earth. He loves Jerusalem. And now Psalm 46 verse 4 calls Jerusalem the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Christ has now returned. He's triumphed over his enemies. He's brought all his saints with him from heaven. Those who have survived the great tribulation and now the return of Christ are now put into two categories. Matthew 25, those who follow Christ and those who do not. The rebels will, Matthew 25, 46, go away into eternal punishment. And the followers of Christ, those who came to saving faith after the taking up of the church, they will enter into this new kingdom age. And the city of Jerusalem, it will be rebuilt. And the whole land is going to actually look very, very different Zechariah 14.10 says the whole land will be turned into a plain. It'll be flattened, except Jerusalem shall remain aloft. Isaiah 2 verse 2 says it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Ostensibly, Jerusalem will be the highest place on planet earth. After the return of Christ. A little side note here. The blasphemous Islamic dome of the rock of the temple mount. Will no doubt have been blown off the map. Because now a new temple is going to be constructed. And this is going to be the centerpiece of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 40, 41, 42, 43, and 44. Parts of 46, 47, and 48. Go into exquisite detail about this glorious new temple complex. This is the climactic moment of the restoration of Israel as promised in Ezekiel 39. It's a complex of buildings, something on the line of 20 to 25 acres on this temple complex. There's outer gates, there's inner gates, there's carvings, there's art, there's large, beautiful open courtyards surrounded by buildings which are several stories tall, one building the equivalent of about 25 stories. There are apartments in the temple complex for the attendance of the temple. There are kitchens. There's dining rooms. There's porticos with palm trees, water, and food. It will be a magnificent temple complex. Psalm 48 extols this great city. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. What does that mean? It's higher than everything else. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king within her citadels. God has made himself known as a fortress. But the temple complex and the city of Jerusalem will have an amazing feature. Something unheard of. Something you've never seen. In our balcony view of the future, fifth, turn your eyes upon the river of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon the river of Jesus. And we see this referenced here, Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, in the ancient world, it was imperative that a city be built at or near a significant water source. Jerusalem is in the hill country of Judea, and if you've been there, it's dry. There, there's no water around there. It's not near a river. But in the 8th century B.C., King Hezekiah dug a tunnel through rock to carry fresh water from the Gihon Spring just outside Jerusalem. This is a little bitty spring to carry water into the city, to the Pool of Siloam, and then to other pools in Jerusalem 
so that they always had water, even if they were under siege. Now, this isn't exactly a rushing river. Uh, Some of you have been to Israel. I've been there, and we've walked through Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's just basically a little trickle that you wade through. And so it's not exactly a rushing river, although the Hebrew word for river can be used to speak of a small current. But the imagery here is not of a small little trickling stream. This is much more about the time of the holy habitation of the Most High, a larger, more forward-thinking thought. And that's what takes us to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 describes the river, the river of a future Jerusalem. And and by the way, before we talk about the river, we don't have to just spiritualize it and say, well, it represents this or that, and we will do that. But have you ever been to a river? Isn't it glorious? It's amazing. And so we're to look forward to this. But what is this river going to look like in Jerusalem when Christ is reigning on earth? The river is going to come up out of the ground. And where is it coming from? It's going to come from the threshold of the temple itself. Ezekiel 47 describes it starting off as a trickle, but then getting to the point where it's too deep to walk through. You you would have to swim across it. Ezekiel 47 says the river will flow east. It will water everything in its path until it merges with the Jordan River and goes to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is six times saltier than the ocean. There's no life in it. And yet the Dead Sea will be turned into a freshwater sea so fresh that fishermen will be all around the banks just throwing nets in and pulling in hundreds of fish. On both sides of the river will be growing every kind of fruit tree. In my backyard, I planted two fruit trees three years ago. They're really big bushes. They have done nothing whatsoever. But listen to this, Ezekiel 47, 12. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is lush. This is glorious. You go to the waters of this river that will merge with the Jordan River right at the north side of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is not dead anymore. There's trees and, and food everywhere. And you, you could take this water and you could drink it and you could say, this water flowed from the temple of God. But Ezekiel only describes the river's flow to the east. Zechariah 14.8 tells us that on that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, the Dead Sea, and half of them to the western sea. What is that? That's to the Mediterranean. And it says on that day, on what day? The same day as the return of Jesus Christ to defeat all his enemies. Immediately a river is going to spring up. It's going to explode with life and with tremendous results. Water roaring out to the land. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It's like a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. What is this? This is a partial reprieve from sin's curse on nature. It's not complete yet, but there's a partial reprieve. But Ezekiel speaks of this river as having trees which bear fruit every month and their leaves for healing. What are these trees next to a glorious river coming from Jerusalem making us look at? Well, it makes us look even farther ahead. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, after Satan has been released for one last stand in which he's judged and thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, and after God has judged all the lost souls of all the ages, now in New Jerusalem on the new earth, Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Does that sound familiar? It does. Because now God's plan has come full circle. The tree of life Growing from the river of the water of life. Tree of life. Where did, that, where did we see that last? We saw it last in the Garden of Eden. And it hasn't been here since, but God is reserving it for that day. Do you remember how the Lord Jesus offered salvation to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4? He called salvation from sin living water. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
in the millennial Jerusalem, the new river will come forth from the temple itself to give life to the land. And in the new Jerusalem, a river of the water of life will be the centerpiece of the city. And of course, this is the recreated and glorious massive version of the Garden of Eden from which flowed rivers which gave life to the land. Genesis 2 tells us that. So you turn your eyes upon the warning of Jesus, the return of Jesus, the triumph of Jesus, the city of Jesus, the river of Jesus. And really probably the main point of Psalm 46, finally turn your eyes upon the protection of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon the protection of Jesus. Psalm 46 Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. What does this mean? God is in the midst of her. This isn't metaphorical. It means God is literally here. The protection of Jerusalem doesn't depend on the water supply. It doesn't depend on the soldiers. It doesn't depend on the walls. It doesn't depend on the weapons. But in reality, it depends on the presence of God himself. And what's the result? The city will not be moved. Listen, for all the people fighting for Jerusalem, the most contested piece of real estate on planet Earth, all you have to do is smile because you know who wins. The one who wins will not only win Jerusalem, but win all of the earth. And then two times we have this repeated refrain, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Repeated again in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What does this mean, the Lord of hosts? When I was a little kid reading this, I always pictured somebody carrying around a tray of hors d'oeuvres. The, the Lord, I didn't know, what is this Lord of hosts? No, it means the Lord of armies. He's the commander, literally in Hebrew, Yahweh of the armies. You recall just before Israel began their God-ordained conquest of Canaan, Joshua, Israel's leader after Moses, was looking upon Jericho. Jericho was where God had directed Israel to begin their conquest and Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. In other words, you asked the wrong question. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Who is this? This is the commander of the armies of the Lord, someone who is appearing in physical form and someone who is worthy to be worshipped. This is a pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the commander of the armies, the Lord of hosts. Listen, I, I can't emphasize this enough. When the psalmist says in verses 7, verses 11, the Lord is with us, this isn't a spiritualized, he's with us in spirit. This is a God is with us right here. Let's go talk to him. Zephaniah 3, beginning in verse 14, says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The Lord Jesus used that same phrase in the Gospel of Luke. That the kingdom is in your midst. And that phrase has been debated. You know what he meant? He meant, I'm here. That's what he meant. And of course, verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It ends in sight where Psalm 46 began by faith. God is our refuge and strength. Ezekiel 48 says that the, in the Messianic kingdom, the city of Jerusalem itself will have 12 gates, each named for the 12 tribes of Israel. But the most remarkable thing about Jerusalem will be the presence of God himself. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel 48.35 says that Jerusalem will have a new name, a nickname of sorts, and it sounds sort of like Jerusalem, but the new name is Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. That'll be the new name. And so in the midst of difficult, strenuous, unjust times, we depend on the Lord and we stand from the battlements and we mock our enemies. 
We mock the enemies of God from the safety of Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. What's the point of Psalm 46? It's for you to live as if it's already occurred. It's for you to live as if this is history. And in fact, our invitation in verse 8, Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought, past tense, desolations to the earth. We're to stand on the balcony of prophetic history as if it's already accomplished. These are, in my mind, powerful, majestic pictures to comfort your soul in this psalm. But I want to close with a little side note. That this psalm, yes, it's powerful, it's majestic, it's meant to give you peace, it's meant to give you comfort, it's meant to give you confidence, it's meant to say we're on the winning team. But the author left an inspired little instruction for this psalm. It's right in the superscript, right before verse 1. This is part of the inspired text. The instruction is, according to Alamoth. According to Alamoth. That might mean a specific tune, but almost certainly the likely meaning is, to be sung by the ladies, to be sung by the women of the congregation. In other words, yes, we have this powerful, strong assurance of God coming through in this psalm, but it's meant to give gentle comfort to be heard through the soothing voices of the mothers and the daughters of our people. To hear the sweet feminine comfort which consoled each one of us as small children at the feet of our own mothers that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What does he say? Therefore, we will not, what? Fear. This is God raging against the raging of the nations, and yet as gentle as a mother, saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we are encouraged and inspired by Psalm 46. It is such a comfort to us. It is such a comfort to have us uh, gather together, Lord, to sing your praises together, to hear your word together, to see each other's smiling faces. What a joy. And we will not be afraid. We are those who have obeyed the command to be still and know that you are God. We have submitted to Christ. And as those who have submitted to Christ, we stand in the battlements of Jerusalem. We stand in the safety of the strength of our God, who is a strong refuge. And we watch as you mock your enemies and as you bring them to destruction in preparation for a day when only the righteous will inhabit the earth. We love you and we praise you for the salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and for a coming day in which every tear will be wiped away, every trouble done. For you are our help in a time of trouble. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.